friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and it's really good to be back with you again this week. It's Lent again. Can you believe it? I find it hard to believe when Lent comes around. It always shocks me more than any other season. I don't know why. I guess because none of us are ever really ready for Lent. (laughs) Or is that just me? Am I only speaking for myself? But, you know, today for Lent, um, this week for Lent, we decided to have Father Roger Landry come back and talk to us and share with us some of his best practices that he can tell us about for Lent, putting our hearts and minds in just the right place so that the season of Lent is not just another season, but something that really changes our hearts and minds and prepares us for that amazing, that realization that God really did intervene in our lives to to save us from the effects of sin, to rid us of the horror of death. Um, that really, the horror of death can't be overstated. And, and God moved in that beautiful way, coming down to the world, then going down even further into the realm of of death and lifting us all out of that out of that horror that faces all of us and all of our loved ones all the time it seems right we never seem to get away from it so anyway father roger landry is going to be uh talking with us. We also invited Mary Eberstadt of the Faith and Reason Institute, one of the leading, really one of the leading lights uh, in Catholic intellectual circles. And she has recently written two pieces for Newsweek, open letters to President Biden. And I'm dying to talk to her about that because they were brilliant. And really, she put her finger on what so many Catholics are feeling and thinking, as we have this amazing sight of a Catholic president in the White House, second time in our nation's history. And then he's disappointing us in many ways, us pro-life Catholics, disappointing us in the way that we're not, we're not feeling supported at the level of the White House in ways that we were supported in the last administration. And that's very strange. We're finding that very strange. And Mary Eberstadt is is kind enough, has been kind enough to, to join us. She'll be joining us a little later and we can talk to her about that. But you know, back to Lent. So again, every year Lent lands um, lands on my calendar. It's right in front of me, or it's arrived as it has this week, and and I'm shocked at it. My husband and I have this uh, this always. We have this back and forth. So at some point, my husband's a convert, and at some point, uh, an early priestly influence. Uh, told him because he was he was a little weirded out by the thick my husband not the priest was a little weirded out by that thick black cross some priests really like to lay it on thick with their with the oily thumb and they they do this giant thing on your forehead and my husband found that a little odd walking around with this uh, symbol on his forehead a symbol that at that point when he first started having it applied maybe he didn't understand so well as he does now um, now that he's uh, more advanced in his understanding of the faith so you have this giant cross on your forehead and he felt so conspicuous and um, a, a priest who was helping him at that time explaining the faith to him and guiding him in his faith journey said to him you know it's totally okay to wash it off because there is a something to be said for for not wearing 
your your penance on your sleeve, right? And of course, our Master Jesus, um, he warns people, uh, people of his time, the Pharisees of his time, he warns them against um, doing all those pious practices in ways that can be that can be seen to do them for show. So there is that, right? There is that reason. So my husband washes it off, and what I like to do is I like to go to mass. I always go first thing in the morning, and I go to mass and I get my big fat thick cross on my forehead and then I go and do um, the rest of my morning things which sometimes is I go to my exercise class where there's 30 women and that's normally what I do on Wednesdays actually and so I walk into the class and I see all these faces of all these women most of the women where I live are Hispanic and they're they're credo Catholics of different um, you know different involvement with their faith some of them very very pious, other ones a little fallen away. And they look up and their eyes widen when they see that cross on the forehead. And and I think it's a great sign. It's a it's a wonderful reminder to our fellow Catholics, sometimes who've been a, a little far away from the faith or, you know, in these years, this year of pandemic, um, maybe haven't been going to Mass at all because they've been scared or they or they feel that it's better for them to stay away for, for you know, for the reasons of, of the health of their families, which I respect. Of course. So then, you know, you see their eyes open and that that uh, that wonderful, it, it strikes at the heart, the idea of, of acknowledging the fact that deep inside all of us is a brokenness that taints everything that we do. Um, all our best ideas are, are somehow infused with that brokenness. Uh, all our best loves uh, the, the best things that we do, the the highest emanations of our of our human selves, still partake of that brokenness where where we don't where we're not able to to really act in a way that as Jesus would act, as God would like us to act, as as God gives us the grace to act through the sacraments. Um, you know what we can we can hope to achieve, what we can hope to to do, and there it is that there is that sign on the forehead of of, of the cross. And, and that is what we have to do this Lent, is, is take on that sign and acknowledge what we are suffering from, which is our human brokenness, the original sin that, that, is, in, that is in all of us, that um, you know, twists our intentions and changes the beauty with which we would like to do things and darkens it. Um, and so th- this is Lent. Lent is a time where we accept that, we we look deep inside and and then we ask god for that overwhelming mercy and grace where he acts in our lives in our hearts in our souls and he offers himself in that timeless sacrifice that just is renewed every single day all across the world in the mass that grabs our souls right down in that mire in which all our souls live and and then he only he can lift them into the higher regions and into those, into the the noble and uh, to, into what we aspire to be the 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 beautiful creatures that that God intended us each one of us to be. That is what we aspire for, we aspire to, I should say, and and really what a what a wonderful opportunity that um, the church gives us every year during Lent um, to deepen our understanding of our brokenness and then. And then grasp for that saving grace. And now we turn to our dear friend, Mary Eberstadt. She holds the Panula Chair at the Catholic Information Center and is a senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. Welcome to the show, Mary. 
Thanks, Gracie. Great to be here. It's really, uh, really special for us to have you on. This is, I think, the second time you've been on the show, and, and we thank you for your time. You are an eminence in, in all of Catholic intellectual, the world today, in uh, Catholic modern thinking, and it's wonderful to have you, not just on the show, but have you as a person who can point things out, you know, with the right depth and bring your rich learning to everything that you do. So thank you. Thank you for all your work, not just for being on the show, Mary. Thanks for those kind things. Thoughts, Gracie. I appreciate it. Just recently, in the last month, you've written two letters. These were open letters that were printed in Newsweek, and these were open letters to President Biden. What were you hoping to achieve with these letters, and do you think President Biden's going to read them and take them to heart? Well, first, let me say, Gracie, that I'm very grateful to Newsweek for opening its pages to me. And to their credit, they understand that this is a conversation that American Catholics need to have. I'm very grateful to them. I wish more uh, venues in the mainstream media could follow their lead. The reason I wrote those letters uh, was actually for several reasons. But first, let's set the big picture up. We are in an unprecedented situation. We have a president president who flaunts his Catholicism and has throughout his political life, yet many of whose policies are diametrically opposed to church teaching. Now, we all know that this is controversial. It's controversial within the hierarchy. There are people who would like to reprimand him in public for those stances, and there are people who embrace him and give him communion. The reason I wrote those letters is that I think that if we take all of those middlemen out of the picture, say his press spokesmen who are always emphasizing his Catholicism and even the hierarchy itself, if it's just two people talking, or in my case, one person talking, I think it helps to clarify just how many contradictions this president is mired in. And it's important to understand these contradictions, um, to understand his violations of the catechism, uh, because if we really believe our faith, then we don't think that this is just some game. We don't think that we're engaging in philosophical exercises. No, we really believe that, that human souls are on the line in these kinds of discussions. And so that's really the deeper reason why I wrote these letters, because I think there is a great danger that the president openly contradicting Catholic teaching over and over and over again will send the message to ordinary Catholics that this is fine for everybody. And it's not. Mary, one thing that you say in the letters which struck me was that there's a tremendous importance to the fact that the leader of the free world is a Catholic and that he has so much influence due to his position. I probably should have thought of that before, but when you when you lay it out like that, I say, yes, it's true that uh, standing uh, where he does, he has a tremendous impact on the hearts and minds and souls of really billions of people and their relationship to God. Yes, and that's especially true, Gracie, because Again, he makes a public profession of this. He is not of the view that he will worship quietly and privately uh, and keep this out of the public square. Quite the contrary. He carries his rosary beads and he talks about how deeply he feels the Catholic faith. So again, there's a real problem here. There's a real potential for misleading other people into thinking that this is now the norm. We are all sinners. Everybody falls short. But that 
doesn't mean that everybody can explicitly violate church teachings and expect to say, I'm still a member of the fold in good standing. That's something completely different. That's about giving scandal. Mary, you mentioned your first letter, and uh, for our listeners who haven't read it, and I recommend to everyone to go to newsweek.com and, and search up your name, Mary Eversat, and read these two great letters. The first one you wrote came out the day before the March for Life in January, late January, and you made the very important point that President Biden really should speak at the March for Life, that here we have a Catholic president. Everyone knows Catholics are intensely interested, as we should be, in the fact that in our country, abortion is legal and that tens of thousands of little boys and girls are slaughtered legally in our country year after year, and that this leaves a terrible stain on the souls of every American. Well, yes, and again, what I was doing, Gracie, was just asking him to live up to his stated beliefs. For a long time now, we've been living with politicians who say that they are Catholic and who say that they are personally opposed to abortion, but they don't want to, quote, impose their faith on the rest of the country. That's a really interesting formulation, personally opposed. Up until now, the emphasis has always been on the personally. So Mario Cuomo was personally opposed. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden is perfect personally opposed what I'm focusing on is the opposed part of that formulation and saying that if you are opposed to abortion, we're not even talking about policy here. We're asking you to make good on that commitment by speaking to the people whose views you say you share. And that's why I was asking him to appear at the March for Life. That was not a facetious request. I thought it would have been a statesmanlike thing. It would have amounted to crossing the aisle and reaching out to a group of people who are pretty skeptical of this president. And that's why I thought it was a unique opportunity to do what Biden said he would do in his inaugural address, which is unify the country. He would have made a lot of uh, hearts glad, I know, if he had done that. I'm thinking particularly of my husband. My husband's a convert from Judaism. One thing that's been really hard for him, converting from his normal growing up milieu, which was Jewish, but very secular and very liberal, has been to live in that, this new world that he lives in, a daily mass core and a fervent believer, and trying to explain that. The stand that he takes as a Catholic now to be pro-life and things like that to his old friends and his family members. And it hurts him very much that now there's a president who calls himself Catholic, very, very strongly calls himself Catholic and makes a big show about it, and then espouses all those views that my husband felt he had to renounce when he became a Catholic and renounced them very gladly because he understood about the dignity of human life and how he had to embrace that, those beautiful ideals. Yes, and what we're seeing is that it's not just limited to the example of abortion. I think across the board, what are called the life issues, issues touching on Christian anthropology, our understanding of humanity itself, all of this is being increasingly challenged uh, by the secular world. And in in the case of all these hot-button issues, Uh, Catholics, including ordinary Catholics, not bookish ones, um, need to be able to defend their faith on these so-called controversial teachings. But the reason we're able to do that is that the teachings hold together. The Mm -hmm. teachings give an account of humanity that actually squares with humanity itself. And we shouldn't be afraid to put that out there, even though there is, in some cases, ferocious opposition. So, again, it's not just about abortion. In the matter of transgenderism, the president is 
also issuing executive orders that are completely at odds with the Christian understanding that male and female, he created them. This is what George Weigel has called, beautifully called, criminalizing genesis. That's what's going on in these kinds of political disputes. And again, the president is on the side that is arrayed against the catechism that thinks the catechism is the enemy. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to the great Mary Eberstadt, who holds the Panela Chair at the Catholic Information Center and is a senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. So Mary, after you wrote the letter in January, which was amazing and so well, such such a thing that had to be said and so publicly, you also wrote a letter just now in uh, February, February 15th, and it's called, Mr. President, Your Allies Are Coming for Your Fellow Catholics. Yes, exactly, Gracie. This goes back to what we were just discussing. The president's political allies, especially his progressive political allies, are pursuing an aggressively secular agenda. And this, again, um, runs into complete contradiction with the Catholics in the public square who are trying to live out their faith. So in this article, I have several examples of attempts to suppress, shut down, harass the expression of Orthodox Catholic positions. Uh, The first example was Ignatius Press, the largest Catholic press in the Anglosphere, having its Twitter account locked for a week, if you know the site that was locked, Catholic World Report, you will know how ridiculous this mm-hmm. is because Catholic World Report deals in scholarship and things like essays on which translation of Augustine's confessions are best, this kind of thing. But they ran a follow of Twitter by a certain formulation involving transgenderism and Twitter closed the account without explanation and then opened it without explanation a week later. There are many other examples in the piece, and it's not a long piece of this kind of low-level harassment by big tech, harassment on social media, harassment of pro-lifers especially. Um, In the article, (laughs) there are so many of these examples that I couldn't fit them all in. So if readers are interested, they can find a link that compiles a bunch of these examples of harassing, let's say, the Susan B. Anthony list and other pro-life organizations. So my point is that this kind of harassment and uh, low-intensity anti-Catholicism is not just happening out there. It is happening through the agency of the people who are President Biden's political friends. So here again, we have a great contradiction. Uh, We may be witnessing a new uprising of anti-Catholicism under the aegis of the first Catholic president in decades. And that's astonishing. That's just astonishing. So what I'm trying to do is speak through the lines to other Catholics to make people aware of what's going on out there, people who don't have time to sit and follow every transgression committed by Twitter and other social media outfits. Uh, What I'm trying to do is bring it to public attention and also to highlight the discrepancy between what President Biden professes 
and what is done in his name and by his allies. Mary, in your piece, you bring up the Southern Poverty Law Center that did a new list of hate groups and also some pro-life organizations, uh, including the Ruth Institute, which is led by Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morris, one of my favorite institutes, which is a pro-family and pro-life institution. And um, I want to just read from your article. You say, by the standards of the Southern Poverty Law Center, every Catholic in America who accepts the magisterium now qualifies as part of a hate group. That really impacted me. Well, I'm not trying to be alarmist. That's not an alarmist statement. It's factual. In other words, imagine waking up some morning and finding yourself on the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate group list because you are a Catholic. Mm -hmm. That is essentially what happened to the Ruth Institute, which all of whose activities are perfectly in keeping with the catechism. It's against pornography. It's against divorce. It's against sex trafficking. It believes in marriage and marriage as defined by the catechism. And for that combination of traits, it has been put up on the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group. For that combination of traits, any Catholic, any Catholic in America could be designated a member of a hate group. So I'm not saying this to um, instill fear in people. I'm saying it because if this is the direction in which things are going, then deciding that the entire Catholic Church is full of haters and bigots uh, is a logical next step from what the Southern Poverty Law Center is doing right now. What a lot of people are experiencing is a lot of Catholics. They see that cancel culture is alive. It's getting stronger. But they they tend, they tend think that this is going to happen to famous people, people that have a, a big, you know, a, a big public presence, uh, but that their own lives are not going to be affected by this. But I'm afraid, reading your piece, um, your great letter, Mary, that we're not thinking big enough here because if if we belong to a ministry that we love at church if we work for a catholic school or our children go to a nice parochial school down the street what separates what separates us from cancel culture what protects our ministry or our school or our church or i don't know the the soup kitchen that we run downtown what separates uh, what protects us from cancel culture at this point well, that's a great question, Gracie, because cancel culture has already come for some Catholic charities. It's come for the adoption agencies. That's true. For running afoul of what the secular culture thinks of as marriage. It's come for other charities, too. I mean, look at what happened to the Little Sisters of the Poor, these saintly mendicant sisters um, who are threatened with handcuffs and fines for not bending the knee to contraception um, always and everywhere. So we've already seen these examples. They're piling up. The question is, what will it take to stop them? And at a minimum, I think heightened awareness is one answer. And if, and if Joe Biden, uh, if President Biden read your piece, and it, and it impacted him, what could he do? What are your prayers that Joe Biden would do if he actually read it and imbibed it? For conversion to the teachings of the catechism. Mm -hmm. It's a big ask. It's a big ask. But again, if we believe what we say we believe when we say the creed, we believe that there are souls on the line in all of these disputes. And that unlike some aspects of politics, there is only one answer to some of these questions. Again, conversion would seem to be the, the best anyone could hope for.
And imagine how powerful a person like that could be, a person who's on fire with, uh, the, with the values and ideals of the gospel and then standing in that place as president of the United States. Well, I do think we will see more of that kind of witness. I'm not saying it'll come from President Biden, but for decades now, especially the sexual revolution has been piling up casualties. And there are many things about the way people live in the secular world, especially the aggressively secular world, that are making people miserable. This became especially clear during the pandemic, Gracie, and we all knew this. People are lonely, people are isolated, people are atomized. And part of the reason for this is that they don't come from robust families in many cases anymore. The sexual revolution acted as a wrecking ball on those large networks of extended family and extended backup and people who care about you. So. I think the great proselytizers of tomorrow and, and maybe some of today are coming from those ranks, those people who have known that damage up close and personal and who have found another way of life that is enriching and answers their questions and answers their brokenness. Uh, so again, it may not be President Biden, but I'm sure that some of our political leaders to come and our cultural leaders to come are going to know very well why they're leaving behind what they're leaving behind and that their witness will inspire others. Do you think, uh, you know, Mary, you are a person who has written very deeply and very beautifully on the on, on the sexual revolution and, and what it has, the, the trauma that it has created and the disaster it has left us with as a culture. Do you think that um, this could be a moment after this terrible year we've had, the pandemic, the, the craziness of our politics and, and the way people have felt um, pushed out of the political process many times or of the cultural process? Do you think that this could be a moment when people can um, start to understand better what the sexual revolution has done to us and how we can begin to re-grasp the beautiful teachings that are not just religious but also anthropological about the reality of human beings. I certainly hope so, Gracie, because this pandemic has made clear how much we all need each other and how much we need our families who are our first line of defense. So if there is something good that can come of this, I'd like to think that uh, maybe we will see bipartisanship as we look at policies that would make it easier to have families, to have children, etc. That's the hope, is that the awareness of our misery and isolation will help our political leaders especially to think harder about how to bolster families and to experiment with policies that will do that. But again, uncritical support for abortion on demand is a dagger um, aimed at that same family. Uh, So the contradiction remains. Well, thank you, Mary, for pointing out those contradictions in your wonderful letters in Newsweek. Thank you for doing that with us as well today. For our listeners, please uh, go to Newsweek, read these letters, share them with your friends, and also go to the Faith and Reason Institute. And I think you have a website too, maryeberstadt.com. Is that true, Mary? Yes. Yes. And, and I highly recommend anyone who hasn't read Mary Eberstadt to Get the books and read them. You're amazing, Mary, and thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Gracie. It's always such a pleasure.
back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And for the rest of the show, we're going to have our dear Father Landry on with us. We are now just entering the first week of Lent of that very special season. And I've asked him to come on and be on the show and talk to us about Lent and how we can make a really, really good, sorrowful Lent. Welcome to the show, Father Landry. It's great to be with you, Gracie, and with all the listeners. Father, you're, you're so kind to us. And every week you record a homily on the Sunday's Gospel, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate them spiritually, and I'm sure that all our listeners and it was a lot of good. It's fun for me to participate, even though I'm often recording those at four o'clock in the morning earlier in the week, but it helps me to get ready for Sunday, so I've got four or five days of preparation before I have the privilege to allow Jesus to hijack my New England accent in the pulpit. <laughs> you do have a strong accent. We were just talking before I hit record about how you're in New York City right now, right? But you're you're experiencing that New England cold as the weather has gripped all of the United States, apparently. I am in New York and um, living these first days of Lent with a nice crisp cold, which allows me to walk much faster as I'm fingering the beads in the greatest place in the world to walk from block to block here. So this morning in particular, by the time I arrived to celebrate Mass for the Sists of Life, for whom I'm a chaplain here in New York City, even with the COVID mask on, my face needed some serious thawing. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> How has it been lately in New York City, Father? Do you, besides the cold, do you see any thawing in the in the lockdown? Are people getting around more, feeling more confident? There's an interesting contrast. For those of us who were here throughout the pandemic, especially last March and April, New York's pretty much come back to life. For those who come from outside of the city, whose last visit here, for example, was prior to the eruption of the pandemic, they still think that it's totally dead. So it's a little bit of a question of perspective. New York's about 40% active, which would still make it the busiest city in the country, mm -hmm. but it's not like the people who are used to the hustle and bustle when they visit the city would expect. But I am happy to see the restaurants open again because so many people work so hard there. For the most part, public services are open, the museums are open, everything's masked, but New Yorkers are pretty good in caring for each other and in masking everywhere they go. And you're able to see a worldwide variety of masks as you crisscross the blocks and the avenues. So yeah, New York is a symbol of what I hope will happen to our country, where despite the changes that have come to try to protect other people, where there's a balance happening, where we are returning to work, where we're doing what we need to, although altered by um, the guidelines that come from the CDC and elsewhere. Well, that's good. Uh, New York can be an example to the rest of the world, then maybe because all of us need to make those adjustments and go forward. We can't stay hunkered down forever. It's been very hard. And people, like you mentioned, people who work uh, in the restaurant industries and in entertainment, how terrible for them that they've been cut off from, from their livelihoods for so long. And hotels and taxi drivers mm -hmm. and Uber drivers and, you know, pretty much the working class 
has yes. taken this straight on their faces. There are lots of others who are able to work remotely if they need to, but in the service industries, I mean, there is no remote care for hotel guests in the rest. And so that's where there's been a concerted effort to try to get as many people back to work as possible. And some of the waiters have told me they've experienced a great deal of generosity from people leaving much bigger tips because they see that the waiters are going to be serving far fewer clients during this time period, and they know that it must be very hard. And so we see that good Samaritan generosity even when you're going out to eat. It is wonderful to see people come with a full heart of generosity to the to the response, right? To the to, to react with with a lot of love and a lot of charity for neighbor. The pandemic has brought out some aspects of the worst in people, but for the most part, I have seen that it's brought out a real solidarity and a real mutual concern, not just in terms of preventing somebody catching COVID and possibly experiencing terrible suffering or even death, but the little things. Homeless people just really grateful for anybody who stops by because they see fewer people Mm -hmm. and they're in greater need, therefore, than some who are able to make a pretty good living to be honest, because they're just seeing a hundred or more people every street light that changes from green to red. And some people do stop. Now when it's far fewer, they're so much more grateful because not, they don't take it for granted either. And so the typical things that we used to take for granted, we no longer are able to. Are able to and that makes us, I think, more grateful for the ordinary. And Father, you wrote a piece in the National Catholic Register about a big change that happened. It, well, it doesn't seem like a big change, but I think I think it is a big change in, in its implications, theologically, that happened in today's Mass. So in the opening prayer of the Mass, what we call the collect, we always finish with the words, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. We've been accustomed to say, one God forever and ever. Today, in the U.S. and Canada, we've removed that word one. In Ireland and England and Australia, New Zealand and other countries made this change back on the first Sunday of Advent last November 20, 29th. But for us, we had always heard that as an affirmation of the unity of the three persons in one God who we call the Trinity. But when this Kalak termination was originally composed in the fourth century against the heresy of Arianism, which taught that Jesus was the greatest human being who ever lived and was eventually divinized, but he wasn't God from God, Lord, light from light, true God from true God. He was eventually divinized, but not truly consubstantial, as we would say, with God the Father. They compose this prayer to affirm Jesus' divinity. And when you get to know the Latin, the God is supposed to refer back to Christ rather than to God the Father with you and in the unity of the Holy Spirit, likewise not the Holy Spirit, but to Christ. And in all the other languages, once the Mass was translated from Latin into Italian or Portuguese or Spanish or French or German, etc., they kept that connection between Christ and the affirmation of divinity, God forever and ever, much more tightly than we did here. And um, the English translators added that word one to emphasize the Trinity, but that's not what 1,600 years ago was being underlined by the by the bishops in particular in North Africa. And so we caught up after 50 years of the English translation to what had happened and all the other translations to affirm Christ's divinity in that opening prayer. So we turn to God the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and we ask that he would hear 
this prayer through His divine Son. You know, Father, I, I think it's hard for people sometimes to understand the great implications of the Trinitarian God, the fact that our God is Trinitarian, three persons in one God. Can you give us a little, uh, just a little sampler of what are these profound implications of thinking of our God, of knowing our God that way? So the first thing we recognize is that God is a communion. God exists in love. It would be almost impossible for us, as St. John affirms, to say that God is love if God were solitary in the universe before he had ever said, let there be light. How can he love if there's no one to love? So right built into the heart of the Trinity, we've got, as some of the great fathers of the church would say, we've got God the Father, who is an incredible lover. We've got Jesus, who is the beloved of the Father. And that love between the two of them is so strong that it actually takes on personality. It becomes the Holy Spirit, co-eternal. So when we're made in God's image and likeness, as we hear in the book of Genesis, God doesn't just make the human person in his image and likeness. It tells us right there that male and female, he created them. So marriage is the foremost expression of the divine image. Sometimes over the course of centuries, we've thought when when you think about the image of God that, well, we're different than animals like our pets because we can reason through things and we can choose. And that's all true. That's part of the image. But the greatest thing, as John Paul II said, we can say about being made in God's image and likeness is that we're made to exist in a community of persons of love. And when you see husband and wife love each other, in the image of the Trinity, that that love can actually lead to another person who not just is the fruit of their love, but a means by which their love is able to grow as that made love is able to be baptized and is able to receive the parental love and then grow and contribute back in making that familial communion ever more loving. And so the consequences for our understanding of God are enormous, but also the understanding of the human person is enormous, that this social nature with which we've been created comes ultimately from our creator because he has this interpersonality within the Godhead. That's so beautiful, Father, to think that something that seems so complicated theologically should have such intimate applications no, to our own life and the, and the way we relate to each other. And of course, as you say, to marriage. Do you think, Father, that this is something during Lent should challenge us to think of that God is love in action. God is love powerfully creating and, and shedding know that luminous that his luminosity and love all around him and making us live through that love do you think that's something that in Lent that can act that can help us to consider our own souls and and how we are living our lives that God gave us it's the fundamental truth of human existence and so I think not only during the 40 days of Lent but during the 365 and a quarter days of every year that should not only inspire us but instruct us how to live let's just talk about Lent though for a second because you asked it should impact our prayer a lot of the times we'll pray just to Jesus. Other than saying the words of the Our Father, we might not pray to God the Father very much. Unless you're a charismatic, many Catholics don't have much of a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that's been taught by the saints is to ask Jesus to lead you to the Father, to ask the Father to teach you more about the Holy Spirit and send the Holy Spirit to help the Holy Spirit enter into a much deeper communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Because what's incredible for this, and this I think will blow you away, I'm stealing what the future Pope Benedict wrote in 1982 as Cardinal Ratzinger in a book called Feast of Faith. We can pray, period, because God is an eternal trialogue. When the second person 
of the Blessed Trinity took on human nature, he brought our humanity somehow mysteriously into these relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you and I and all our listeners are able to enter into that eternal trialogue when we're baptized, in which we receive the Holy Spirit who helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. We can pray, and prayer is obviously one of the key Latin practices, but extends throughout the entire year, because God is conversation. (laughs) And Jesus' whole work was to take us into that conversation. And our life here on earth and our life in eternity is meant to exist within a communion of saints, within the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's as deep as it goes. And the more we sort of look at that reality, then we'll go beyond just saying our prayers, but we'll be seeing that prayer is not so much an exchange of words or even ideas, but it's an exchange of persons in which God comes comes to dwell within us and we abide in him. That's the deepest essence of our prayer. And the more we capture that as we grow in it during Lent, the more fruitful our Lenten practice will be. What a beautiful reality. Instead of thinking that we are, you know, sometimes when we pray, I know I do this all the time, I'm sort of giving God a laundry list of my needs and, <laughs> and my mistakes. And, and instead to think, to understand it that way, that we're, we're actually participating in that eternal conversation of love, you no, know, between God and his son and, and the love that they that they breathe out towards each other. And God first speaks by totally giving himself. When you look at the Trinity, the only thing that they can't give is who they are in terms of their personality. Father gives everything except who he is as Father. The Son gives everything who he is except Son. And so when we pray, we have to be open to what God is giving to us first. So often we pray a little bit like that Toby Keats song. I want to talk about me. I want to yeah. talk about I. I want to talk about, you know, me, my, my. I forget exactly how it goes. But we, we start with ourselves, whereas prayer really should start, even if we don't hear anything, even if we feel no consolation. At that time when we're in God's presence, God is loving us. He's giving himself to us. And if we open ourselves up to that reality, we will be changed more spiritually than you will on a sunny day on a beach in Miami by an external camp. Father, you wrote a book called Plan of Life that I love very much and I've and I've given it out to several people who I knew and I know are trying to improve their daily connection to God, their daily, or, and you know, also all their different practices, their pious practices. In that sense, for our listeners who are trying to to go to the next level as Catholics and be more practicing and be more connected and, and be more constant, what would you suggest for Lent especially? That, what are ways we can grow during Lent in our connection to God. Jesus gives us those three main categories on Ash Wednesday. Mm -hmm. The first, he says, is when you pray. And so the most important thing we do in life is pray. Pope Francis, in his letter for this Lent 2021, looked at how we grow in faith, hope, and love precisely through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And prayer is faith in action. And so the more we pray, the more we entrust ourselves to God and His providential care. Fasting leads us to hunger, not just for food, but also to hunger for what God hungers. And so it it leads to a hunger, both materially and spiritually, that God and His providence wants to fulfill. Almsgiving is when we begin to put other 
other's needs ahead of our wants. And we begin to love our neighbor truly. And the more we love our neighbor, the more we're practically loving God. Because you remember in St. Peter's conversion after the resurrection, when Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. That our love for God will be shown by our love in caring for Jesus' sheep and lambs. And so our charity grows through the exercise of almsgiving when we're doing it with a good heart. And so these three practices, we've got to make them very practical. So prayer can't just be whenever I can feel like it. If it's so important, we need to schedule and keep our appointment with God like we would keep an appointment with with anybody who's truly important in our fasting, we need to come up with a plan. Listen, giving up potato chips or giving up chocolate isn't going to make you a saint. And so to push ourselves a little bit on our fasting, provided that we don't have any health issues. And then in terms of our almsgiving, charity is really the expression of our faith. And it can't just be random acts of kindness. It has to be planned if it's that important. And so what plan would we come up? And almsgiving is more than money. Almsgiving is time. Almsgiving giving is giving of mercy to those who need our forgiveness. It's giving encouragement. There are so many ways that we can pour ourselves out for those because the needs that others have are great. Well, thank you, Father, for those words. I know I'm going to put them into effect during Lent. I was just thinking as you were speaking about charity and, and how and the almsgiving and how there are a lot of people in my life that don't need my money or my material help, but they need my attention. They need a phone call from me. They need a smile. One of the penances I give to a lot of my my spiritual directees who are religious women and so they're under the vow of poverty so they have nothing that they own that they can give away to somebody who would need it more. What I do encourage them to do is take a calendar with the 46 days of Lent the 40 days plus the six Sundays. Put somebody's name in each day of that calendar. Offer up your prayer that day. Offer up your work. Offer up any contradictions or sufferings for that person and then try to reach out to that person in some way. A small little note, a text message if the person has texts, quick phone call, etc. But to just really love 46 people in the 46 days of Lent, that type of outpouring is totally transformative when you do it. And so I'd encourage those uh, listening on conversations with consequences to make this conversation a little consequential in that way too, because it not only changes us 46 days in a row, but it can really be exactly that lifeline that somebody needs at this time of isolation because of the pandemic to say, somebody really does care about me. And this person is an ambassador of God appealing to me, just saying, you're worth my time and I love you. Oh, I love that Father, I'm going to make my list right now. I, I know I can come up with 46 people. <laughs> and if not, just I'll make, start recycling make sure, them. Make, make sure Father Roger Landry is one of those 46 days, please. Okay. I need those prayers. <laughs> well, thank you, Father. You always have our prayers and you always have our deep gratitude for being part of this radio show every week and giving us your wisdom and insight for the coming gospel, for this Sunday's gospel. So thank you very it's, much, Father. It, it's always a joy to be with you. I'm so proud of the great work that you're doing in the program. And I look forward to joining everybody at the end of the session with some words about Jesus in the desert. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to join you again and ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us on the first Sunday of Lent as we journey with Jesus into the desert. Most people have no desire to go to the desert, certainly for no more than a tourist visit. 
But after all the snow in the last month and the sub-zero temperatures in most parts of the U.S., many of us would admit that the desert is looking a lot more appealing. At a spiritual level, however, we should always have a great love for the desert because the desert is what helps us understand the 40-day pilgrimage of Lent, which we join and imitate Jesus in the wilderness and ponder the fruits of what he learned and experienced there upon his return. Every Lent, the same Holy Spirit whom we read in today's Gospel drove Jesus into the desert, wants to drive us into the desert with him. Lent is meant to help us recapitulate Jesus 40 days away from everything so that we, apart from every distraction, can focus on our relationship with God and others and on who we really are. With Christ's help, can confront and overcome the way the devil seeks to distort those relations and that image. To go into the desert is increasingly difficult for people today. We're so connected that if we're out of cell phone range, we can easily feel lost. While the Lord is not calling us all physically to go into the sands of Nevada, He is calling us to the state of the desert, removing ourselves from distractions from the television, computer, radio, newspaper, and the various things that may be fine in themselves, but crowd our lives with noise so that we can't hear God, and with clutter so that we can't see Him. The first temptation we face in Lent is to refuse to go into the desert with Christ, to think that our Lent can be complete if, for example, all we do is give up chocolate and potato chips. The first big hurdle is for us to hear Christ's voice from the desert saying, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. The next lesson we need to grasp is what is supposed to be the fruit of that time in the desert. What does the Holy Spirit who drives us to this Lenten desert experience want us to achieve? Jesus shares that lesson with us as soon as he finished the first 40-day retreat. He returned saying, repent and believe in the good news. These are the words he shared with us when we were marked with ashes early this week. To repent, what metanoia means in Greek, is to revolutionize the way we look at things, at the world, at ourselves, at others, so that we might put on the way Christ looks at things. It means to turn our thoughts right side up. It's as if we've been going in one direction and Jesus tells us, stop, turn around and go in the opposite. He's not calling us to a tiny course correction, not to a one or two degree turn, but to something closer to a 180 degree turn, a radical conversion. He wants us to examine all those parts of our life that are not in alignment with him and convert in such a way that we begin to turn with him, which is what convert means. When we look at the way the devil tried to tempt Jesus in the desert, we see the three fundamental ways we can get out of spiritual alignment. And Jesus teaches us how in Lent to seek to press the reset button in our spiritual life to come back into alignment. The first temptation is to disorder our relationship with God, indicated by the temptation to throw oneself off the parapet of the temple, presuming that God would save us by sending his angels to present to prevent our dashing our foot against a stone. The devil seeks to tempt us, in short, to commit spiritual suicide, to believe that God will prevent any harm to us or others if we do something fatally risky. The devil tries to get us to jump off various cliffs and then blame God for letting us suffer the consequences. Jesus shows that the proper response is never to put God to the test, but in fact to love him and throw ourselves into his arms rather than from dangerous precipices. The second temptation is to disorder our relationship with others. The devil promised Jesus that he would give him rule over all cities, to be in control over everyone else, to have others serve him rather than serve them, if only he would 
take the bargain of falling down before the devil in homage. Jesus resisted the temptation toward this type of diabolical control by quoting scripture about worshiping and serving the Lord our God alone. When we do so, we seek to serve others made in that image and likeness, reverencing the Lord and others, seeking to serve them with love rather than be served, to lay down our lives for them as Christ did. Third temptation is to disorder a relationship with ourselves, using what God has given us egocentrically for our own purposes rather than for God and others. This is shown in the temptation the devil gave Jesus to change stones into bread after 40 days of hunger. How strong this temptation must have been. But Jesus replied that we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. We're supposed to use our talents not selfishly, but for God, for others, and ultimately for our true good, that the word of God may be done in us. In response to these three fundamental temptations, Jesus not only shows us how to resist with the power of the word of God, but also, as divine physician, prescribes for us on Ash Wednesday the medicine we need when he speaks about the three traditional Lenten practices of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Prayer helps us to order our relationship with God. Almsgiving helps us to reorder our relationship properly with others. Fasting helps us to reorder ourselves within, making sure our body obeys a properly formed conscience. That's why these three together constitute a crucial part of our Lenten penance, of living with Jesus in the desert and entering into his resistance to every temptation. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are not a spiritual multiple-choice test, but a three-drug cocktail we need to treat our illness. Prayer exercises our faith in God, fasting our hope toward the fulfillment of our physical and spiritual hunger, almsgiving our love for others as Christ has loved us. They are at the root of our spiritual renewal. So let's get practical. What resolution will you set for your prayer? How about a commitment to go to daily Mass? Or to pray each day for a half hour. Or to pray the rosary each day if you're not praying it already. Any of those would be very effective ways to make God truly God in your life. Many people likewise add the Stations of the Cross on Fridays, but just doing the Stations of the Cross on Friday is not going to revolutionize your life the way these daily commitments would. What about fasting? Fasting can help us overcome our addictions and gain self-mastery so that we can truly give ourselves to the things of God. How about giving up all alcohol and all sweets for the 40 days of Lent? If that's too much, how about going without condiments on your food, not using sugar, salt, pepper, ketchup, salad dressing, or butter? How about going only on two meals a day rather than three? Each of these would help gain control over our appetite for food, which can help us control all our other appetites. Finally, what about almsgiving? How generous can you be with those you know who are struggling to make ends meet because of COVID layoffs, with the homeless, or with the church and good initiatives to spread the faith? At a spiritual level, how generous can you be in forgiving those who have hurt you? How lavish can you be with your time visiting in person or virtually those who are isolated because of the pandemic? I'd urge you to choose one in each category and persevere living them with God's help throughout this holy season like to finish with the Holy Eucharist, which we look forward to receiving this Sunday. Preparation for the Mass, we always fast at least an hour so that we might hunger more and more for every word that comes from the Father's mouth, and especially for the Word made flesh, Jesus, who comes from the Father's bosom. In the Mass, we experience the supreme form of prayer, entering into Jesus' own from the Last Supper in Calvary. 
And not only do we receive Jesus' greatest alms, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, but are helped by him from the inside to do this in his memory, living truly Eucharistic lives by giving our body and blood, sweat, tears, and heart, and loving service to others. As we prepare to receive Jesus, we ask him for the grace to live this 40-day calling, to come apart with him from the crowds to a deserted place in the most bold and holy way possible, so that we can experience the joy that comes from repentance and faith and become signs with him to the whole world, that this is the time of fulfillment and the kingdom of God is at hand. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 